Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga and the creator of the Momentum Magic Method, showing you the way to becoming a confident teacher who seamlessly shares cues and easily creates sequences, whose classes feel like events, who understands anatomy, and who shares their passion in a unique and authentic way. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. In addition to the podcast, follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into the episode. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 240. So I'm recording this intro on May 15th, 2023, and this episode will go live a week from today on May 22nd. And I'm super excited because we have a really amazing guest on the show. I want to introduce you in this quick intro before we hop into the episode to who is on the show today. And this is going to be a conversation with Dr. Tawny Cross, K-R-O-S-S. She is a doctor of physical therapy and a pain specialist, and she has nearly a decade of experience, and she'll talk about this in the episode, uh, working at, at a VA hospital in North Carolina, working with patients that have some of the most complex chronic pain cases. And she also has her own program where she works with busy female professionals, helping them with chronic pain that They've been through traditional treatment and they know that there is a mind-body component there and want to work with her to really uh, improve the quality of their life. And we go into that towards the end of this episode. This episode is really important for yoga teachers to listen to because it helps us better understand pain, what is pain, what falls into the clinical bucket, what falls into the perceptual or experiential bucket. We even go into in this conversation, a piece about when students come to you before class and they tell you they are experiencing pain. What can we as yoga teachers say to help that person to not um, disregard their pain and at the same time to not go so much into the area of just saying, don't do anything, just rest and still be within our professional scope of practice. So that's one particular part of this conversation. And the whole of it will give you, as it gave me, I'm sure, a much better appreciation for pain as an experience of the human body. So with that, I'm going to hop right to the interview. I don't want to take up any more time and get right to the goodness. That is my conversation with Dr. Tawny Cross. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good to see you. Well, it's it's been a, a better start to this day than it was yesterday. <laughs> Very good. Fantastic. Well, happy Mother's Day. I know you have kids, right? Thank you. Yes. And you have a dog. At least I do. I have a dog. So I consider it Mother's Day too for yes, my dog. You should. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to get together and chat. This is definitely going to be a fun way for me to learn more about what you do. And also, I'm really excited because I have, you know, this podcast with yoga teachers. And I know that a lot of what you cover is going to really be helpful to them to hear more about. So thank you so much for jumping on with me. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. I was actually very intrigued when you talked about how um, yoga teachers like work with pain so much. And it was, it was just weird to me that I didn't think about that before because yeah. I send people to yoga all the time if they have pain. And I didn't realize that there might be a fair, a lot maybe of people who, who teach yoga that may not feel confident about um, working with pain. Yes. Yes. And I think that there's probably so many layers there that we can get into about what is pain and what's the source of pain and how might you, you know, 
in the context of teaching somebody yoga, how might you help them with that? So I definitely feel like we can get into those topics today and it will be definitely helpful for teachers. Yeah. So with that, maybe a good place to start is Mm -hmm. if you can share a little bit about your background and what you do right now, how, how are you using that background? So maybe start there. Yeah. And I so apologize. I'm not sure what's going on with my camera. (laughs) Okay. That's all right. We're just using the audio. So no worries. Okay. Yes. So my background and what I do. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So my background is in physical therapy and, um, I had primarily speaking been, um, been trained very biomechanically. So the stuff that you do, Karen, in, in your work, like the, the anatomy, the physics, all that kind of stuff. Um, And what I ended up doing is I went, I went to work, um, right off the, um, graduation in a veterans hospital. Okay. And the veterans hospital environment is not very conducive to straightforward pain. (laughs) So I thought, okay, maybe it just stretches and exercises and these people will get better. And that's, it's very, very overwhelming when you think that way, because if the average population has 20, 25% of people that have chronic pain, um, which is a lot, the veteran population has 75, 80, even up to 90% that have very, very complex pain categories. Um, And so I was very in, (laughs) out of my depth. Um, And so in the beginning, it was, it was a lot about trying to figure out, am I doing something wrong? Do I not know enough? Do I need to have more skills? Do I need more experience? Um, And after a few years of of floundering, trying to figure out like what things I needed to learn more about, I landed into studying pain science itself and figuring out what it is that um, played a part into pain and started to go more in the whole mind-body approach rather than just looking at things on a physical mechanical level. And it has changed my practice and what I do. And um, some of my colleagues nowadays are like, what do you even do anymore? It doesn't look like you do normal physical therapy. (laughs) I'm like, no. So I think I was joking with our our mutual coach, Karen, um, about how I do physical therapy without doing physical therapy nowadays. Um, So I have a lot of tools in my toolbox that help enable people to heal from their own bodies, I would say more so than me just giving, giving them stuff to do. Um, part of the, the healing process is helping people to see that their bodies are, are already healing and trying to do that for them. They, they just need to be able to understand how. Got it. Okay. One thing I'm going to say, cause I'm hearing it. I think your earphones are scratching against your shirt and so oh. I think it's creating, it almost sounds like you're wearing bangles on your wrist, which I don't think you are. So yeah. So just as you're moving, if it scratches against your shirt, it's going to come as feedback. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> so just I, be aware of that. I'll, you know I'll pull it I away. I like to move as I talk as well. So that would be hard for me to do. Yeah. So that's better. Okay. Um, so tell me, even though it sounds like you sort of I don't want to say modified, but you've kind of honed in on a specific way of working with people that blends your physical therapy background with your passion for helping people manage pain. Even though the approach sounds like it's somewhat unique to you, tell us, tell me how you are working that right now. Like, do you work in a clinic? Do people see you at your house? Like, how is that actually looking? Yeah. So, um, I still have a nine to five at the veterans hospital I work in. Um, so, um, that takes up my, a big chunk of my day. Um, but I also have my own, um, business, uh, which I, I am primarily doing virtual, I would say pain coaching to, to catch what I do. Um, however, it's, it's, it's got a lot of different facets to, to the coaching pieces. Got it. So when you said the VA hospital thing, I somehow thought when you talked about it earlier, that because of the nature of the intensity and the frequency of the pain that you only were there for a short period of time, it sounds like though you stayed. Yeah, I'm um, I'm coming up on 10 years. <laughs> wow. So all of what you had originally thought of like, who am I to be here? And this is what I'm in over my head. You definitely worked through that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, I, I was officially hired on as a pain specialist uh, last year. Wow. That's amazing. And I mean, I totally can imagine working with veterans is sort of a very special niche and there's like the PTSD overlaid on the psychological without PTSD overlaid on the functional movement problems overlaid on the clinical problems. So it's probably a very unique population to work with. It, I would say you pretty much described it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So for now, let's kind of put that um, piece. I don't want to put it to the side saying there's anything bad or wrong. Just let's turn our focus a little bit more only because I think for most of the yoga teachers listening, although some of them might work with veterans, I do have a couple of people I know who specifically have programs where yoga is working with veterans. Absolutely. Let's focus though, just to start on kind of just this general idea of pain as a topic, because I know for me and my expertise around anatomy, I don't always specifically go into pain as a topic, as it relates to like the nervous system and it's its influence on, I mean, I talk about the nervous system as it relates to muscle movement and voluntary muscle movement and that sort of thing, contractions of muscles and creating joint movement. I know though, that there's probably a whole bunch of other things we can focus on if we think about the nervous system and its impact on someone's experience of pain. And so what, what kinds of things come up for you, maybe as you're seeing patients or what you're doing, or even just topically help somebody listening, understand like, should I even say what is pain? <laughs> is yeah, it- no, I think that's a great question. Yeah. So go with that. Let's start there. Yeah. So, um, I think it's, it's been a very big shift in terms of medicine for not just people, but medical providers as a whole. Um, pain in the past has been very, very poorly misunderstood. All of us used to think that was purely about physical stuff, right? So like, what does your joint look like? What does your muscle look like? What did you herniate? What sort of rotator cuff was torn? Mm -hmm. We thought about pain that way, that there was something physically wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But what, and I, I made a post about it today, actually, like almost half the population has something physically off about them. They have a misalignment, they have a rotator cuff tear, they have a meniscus tear, they have like all these weird funky things. And that half the population has no pain. Yes. I remember when we went to Cadaver Lab a couple of years ago, the lab director said he was amazed by how many dissections he would do and they would find like really legit stuff in the body, like herniated discs and stuff. And the person never had any reports of pain from it. Yeah. And I think that is a big shift because like we're so many medical doctors still are trying to diagnose off of images. They're like, oh, you've got a herniated disc. That must be the reason for your pain. Or you've got a bit of arthritis. And what you end up with by doing that is you're actually scaring people. Because I hear like the minute that you hear, oh, I've got a herniated disc. Now it becomes, this is the reason for my pain. And like my body's broken when that's just not true. So and if, if we're thinking half the population have these weird physical things that you find on cadavers or wherever else and have no pain, then we're missing the bigger picture. Like that means if you and I both had a herniated disc and neither one, has pain, uh, one of us has, has pain, could we actually say it was from the herniated disc, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So they, they shifted to something what they, is called the biopsychosocial model, which is in, includes the biology, it includes the psychology, psychological stuff, the mental health, and it includes the sociological pieces in your background, like um, your relationships, your economics, things of that nature, and the environment as a whole. All of those things need to be considered that, um, that play a part into pain. And so someone, for instance, can have very real, there's nothing fake about pain itself, but they can have very real physical body pain. Mm-hmm. And it has more to do with the psychosocial pieces than it does that the little bit of arthritis that's showing up in their like shoulder. Hmm. So you're saying two people who have different psychosocial and socioeconomic profiles 
could have the same clinical diagnoses, however, experience pain differently. Absolutely. And one of them could have none, like no pain, just or no symptoms whatsoever. So I especially am thinking about the psychosocial and the socioeconomic things. Like I'm thinking someone who maybe is living in poverty would have an exacerbated expression or experience of pain, maybe because of their lack of access to resources and healthy food. Is that sort of where this goes? Yeah, absolutely. Like they, like you'll, you'll hear some people say, I don't know how often this comes up in, in yoga, but you'll hear people say like, it's weird. My stress causes my pain to be worse or my stress definitely seems to trigger my pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and stress can come in different forms. It can be social economic stuff. It right. could be, you know, having a mental health disorder. Right. Okay. Got it. So are we then saying that when we look at pain, there usually is a source of it. However, the experience of it is different. Like, I know we we sort of talked about the x-rays and the imaging before, maybe like that doesn't tell the whole story, which totally sounds true. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm wondering though, is if someone has pain, do they always have an accompanying something clinical or could they have pain in the absence of that? They can have pain in the absence of physical anomalies. Okay. So then what does that suggest? Because I guess like I sort of think about, I live with a guy who grew up playing hockey and he always Mm -hmm. talks about how hockey players out of all the sports are the ones that they will go out back on the ice no matter what. And all the other, and he's of course biased, but he's like all the other (laughs) sports, it doesn't matter how little the injury is. They get carted off, blah, 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 blah. And I sort of think of that. I'm like, what is it about hockey players that they can just deal with the pain and go back? And truly there's so many things you can see if they get stitched up, they go out other sports, they're off the field. Mm -hmm. And so that to me, and he'll say to me, it's just the mental part of hockey that you're just raised in that culture, just with that expectation of you're going to ignore the pain and it doesn't bother you. You just want to get back on the ice. Like that's your whole mission is to get back on the ice. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, does that suggest maybe not just in this example, but in general that you can think yourself out of pain? Yes and no. Um, It's always one of those depends kind of things. But so yes, your brain has an incredible control over what you feel for sure. Um, It, I think what, why I say no is because I, I bump into a lot of people that are thinking if I just consciously believe that pain is not there, if I could just think it out, my pain is is not going to be there, which is, I think very, very um, misleading because our conscious brains only, you know, capture five, 10% of what we actually think and do. So there's a lot of subconscious stuff. There's also body memories, which is a whole different thing. Um, and all of those things have to work together with that conscious part of the brain to really affect pain as a change. Now, I would say sometimes the, the way that you're describing hockey players um, kind of is the mentality of a lot of military men or men in general, right? And what we have found is the push through mentality is helpful and adaptive for those particular experiences. But in the long haul, trying to push and ignore through pain isn't actually a helpful strategy. And it doesn't, quote, heal pain or bring you magical pain relief in the long haul. However, the other piece (laughs) that's also complicating here is the thing that you described sounds also a lot like um, this story I give about demolition derby drivers. Demolition derby drivers, in case you didn't know, they drive, they, they crash like 50 times a night on average and are usually doing 25 to 35 miles an hour, right? So they're, they're like, having high like cars, like souped up cars type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So the average person, when I ask them this question, what do you think the incidence of chronic pain is? 
for these demolition derby drivers. And most people would say it's pretty high because they have repeated physical injury. It's actually less than 2%. Hmm. It's incredibly low. But the difference is for them, why they have repeated injury and can escape uh, persistent pain is because to them, it feels like they're doing bumper cars. They love what they do. They're like, yeah, let's do more. It, it's, there's not actually a very high stress environment for them. It's something that they enjoy. So as soon as they have an injury and their tissues heal, their nervous system actually settles back down to their baseline. But someone who gets a fender bender and maybe they barely get love tapped once in their life, the incidence of chronic pain is very high for those people because you're thinking about, you know, oh my gosh, now I got to deal with insurance. I was inconvenienced and there's road rage. Just like, you know, like there's all that stuff that plays into the factor of stress and that itself is taxing the nervous system. So even if you had no injury, your system is still kind of primed to be in that fight or flight state. And the longer that your system stays in that fight or flight state, the more that it's going to show up with symptoms like pain. Hmm. So is there some aspect of the nervous system that's working to create pain that we can measure? And then some aspect of the nervous system, that's kind of like the unconscious perception of that person and the way they are in the world that we kind of can't measure. Um, I think I would wonder what, I guess, measurable. Yeah. Maybe measure is not the right word. I'm thinking, I mean, if I, if I look at the nervous system, like if I look at a joint, I can say the shoulder joint is X. If I move my arm this way, that's shoulder flexion. Mm -hmm. If I look at someone who's experiencing pain, can I, on some level, just look at it through the lens of the brain is sending a signal to a particular, like, let's say somebody has, um, somebody has pain in their neck, like a numbness and tingling type thing, and not just a tendonitis type thing. And maybe they're having like radiating pain down their arm. So can I look at that through the lens of the nervous system has a nerve that's being compressed by a muscle and that's causing pain? And then can I also look at it from the point of view of and this person is someone like you described in the example, someone who has a lot of stress in their life. Maybe they, um, you know, the fender bender type person versus the hockey player type person that might, even though sub- objectively there is that nerve being compressed, they're just not experiencing it the same way. Yes, absolutely. So there's, there's actual um, coming from, let's say the muscle or joint, right? And then there's also what we call sensitization, where the nerve itself is not actually compressed. It's totally fine, but it's starting to, um, you're, you know what a myelin sheath is, but I'm, yeah. I'm not sure your average yoga um, teacher yeah. does, but like it basically takes off the coating on the nerve so that more nerve sensors can sit on the nerve. And because now you kind of have a live wire, it's picking up yeah. feed, feedback from everything. And so why it, does that happen? Oh, in some, some people have this sort of stripping of the myelin. Yes. It, it happens because it, it can come from stress. Like it can come from whiplash. Like you, you may just be like, your system's like, Whoa, that was very freaky. I don't want that to happen again. I need to stay more on hyper alert. So it, the whiplash thing comes from like, everything's so sensitive for a while because your nerves are taking their year to settle. Okay. Got it. All right. So now that we've talked a little bit about pain. And there's obviously this whole like category of situations where someone can be presenting with pain and it's not super clear when you're looking at them, what the real problem is, or the problem doesn't really match the level of discomfort they're in or agony or whatever word you want to use. So how are you how do you kind of approach that sort of situation with somebody? And I guess I'm talking about it more, not so much in the yoga world, which we can make a shift to that conversation at some point right now, just in your work with people, like I'm assuming you're not telling them it's all in your head, <laughs> just no. a little bit of deep breathing and it should be great. So like, yeah. so, uh, um, so because my role shifted, it's a little bit different, but most of the time 
what should happen is when someone comes in to see me or another physical therapist, there should be a gathering of information. So we call it the subjective history. Um, and then we do a physical examination because for the most part, tissue-based pain or, or pain that is predominantly, and I say predominantly because just to emphasize here, all pain, whether it's from an ankle sprain to not an ankle sprain comes from the brain and is felt in the body. So it's always both. It's never in the brain and it's never just in the body. It's always, always both. Um, but that being said, if a pain is predominantly driven by um, information coming from the tissues, they're saying, okay, something's being pinched or something was sprained here, then the behavior of the pain is very predictable. It is very easy to understand. It is the people that come in to see me and they're like, I have a rotator cuff pain. It doesn't bother me when, I, when I'm just at rest, but it does bother me with this particular movement and nothing else, right? It's, it, there's very defined um, moments of when that pain seems to trigger. They, they're behaving very, quote, textbook-like. And then they're going to be the people that you give them a few stretches and exercises. You see them maybe for a month and then they're happily on their way and they never come back. Okay. The people that have more of a complex pain, which I would say happens to be um, a, a fair, a, a lot more than people think, because sometimes people can come in with quote mechanical type pain. Um, but if you start to dig into some of their, their social and psycho, um, psychological histories, um, you'll find there's a lot more to that story that they're not sharing with you. Um, so the, the gathering of the information shouldn't just include like, when were you injured? Like, blah, 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 blah. It should be gathering some pieces of social information, some pieces of like a mental health, as much as you can. Um, and then there's also what we call outcome measures, which, you know, sometimes people, people employ. But outcome measures are like a form that people can fill out and it will basically help guide you whether or not there's some yellow flags or psychosocial factors that you should be considering in their treatment. Okay. So this would be part of the assessment when someone isn't like that situation you talked about before, where you give them a few exercises, they have, uh, they start to see the benefit, they feel better and they're off often running. Um, so what are some of, I know we talked earlier about like psychosocial factors and economic factors. Can you like drill down on that a little bit more? Like what are some of the things that amplify pain for people that might not be related to their physical body? Yeah. Um, I think it kind of gets back to that question you had on root cause. Um, because for me, I don't necessarily think that for chronic pain, you can narrow on the one root cause because mm -hmm. everything plays off of one another. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that I describe it um, is, is through the metaphor of, of if you think about your body, and your nervous system as a, as a tub, mm -hmm. a bathtub, mm -hmm. um, the physical faucet was, is the only one that we used to think about, right? That's like, did you sprain your ankle, herniated disc, whatever. Now, if we, again, remember that less than half the population or half the population have, don't show up with symptoms, it's because that physical faucet that poured into the bathtub, your, your bathtub's like, yeah, that's not a big deal. I've got other rotator cuff muscles, not a big deal, whatever. But everything affects physical performance in one shape or another. So if, if I decided I wanted to run a marathon and I have a piece of toast in my belly, that's going to tax a lot of physical um fuel for me and I don't have enough to generate to get me through the finish line. And I might come up with cramps. I don't have enough water, right? All those things affect what your nervous system is doing. Mm -hmm. um, so food is definitely a big piece. Um, and then I would say sleep is another. If you have less than six hours of sleep a night, you obviously don't have enough oomph the next day. Plus it affects nerve sensitivity. Like you physically cannot perform as well. Um, mm -hmm. So you have like low energy levels, your nerves can't perform as well. Um, if you are sick, if you're in a bad mood, like you just, you don't have the ability to actually perform at optimal, right? Got so it. it's, it's really everything. And it's the accumulation of uh, accumulation of all these different things that end up filling your tub. And when that tub is overloaded, it, 
is going to show your system is going to give you a symptom. For me, it's pain. For somebody else, it might be IBS, it might be panic attacks, whatever, whatever that looks like. And I think in the past, in the, in the conventional medical world, we've all been stuck on, let me just treat the pain. Let me just wipe the pain puddle off the ground. But your nervous system is trying to tell you it's overwhelmed. And we need to go back into what are the different faucets that are contributing to the tub? Why isn't my tub draining? Does it have a big clog? Um, mm-hmm. And then look at those things and start to teach people how to address the faucets, widen their tub, or be able to like work with the faucets that they do have because not every faucet is changeable. Mm-hmm. So when you said at the beginning, when you were saying some of your colleagues are like, what are you actually doing these days? Like, how are you actually working <laughs> with people? I can imagine that a lot of what you're talking about now is part of how you work with people that maybe initially you didn't incorporate, address all these other pieces. Mm -hmm. So I know you had also said there was some sort of obviously initial assessment you do. Can you tell me though, what does this look like? Like if I'm coming to see you and I have a particular pain somewhere in my body, how are you getting to the other, like what's giving you the red flag or yellow flag that it's not just that person that you're going to do a couple little exercises with and send them on their way. This is going to be another one of those complex, more complex cases. How are you actually helping that person? What are you doing? Yeah. Um, so I love that you said red flags because I think that's a, an important pain point, pain point. <laughs> one point to make. <laughs> can't talk um but yeah so we want to actually make sure that we're cleaning red flags because obviously some there's some scary hairy stuff out there like let's say someone has cancer and you're like oh no it's just like it's it's something we got to work on in terms of stress or whatever that's not helpful so we do want to um, be able to ask the questions to clear certain red flags um in the world that I am in the hospital right now, people actually already know, they recognize these signs. They're like, these, this person has done PT forever. This person has tried this forever. And so they'll funnel them to me. Um, so I don't necessarily need to have to go through all of the, the same ta- uh, measuring mechanisms that I used to have mm-hmm. to do. Um, but when someone gets into my clinic, um, if they don't know that that's what they're there for and that I'm not gonna be giving them another stretch, another exercise, Um, then what I usually start with is education. I'm like, what do you understand about pain? What do you know about pain? And um, here's why this is important because most people will have probably a preconceived idea of what pain is, whether they were taught by their doctor. And so they need to know that I might be pushing back a little bit against it. Um, And I, I, I think that I've done it well enough that it's usually not gonna come across as like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so nowadays it's education first, and then I offer them three categories or options. I'm like, we can work on three different ways of thinking about this. Like we're looking at your faucets. Yes, but it can be easily broken down in the area of the mind. What do you want to do in the area of the mind? What do you want to do in the area of the body? And, and, or what do you want to do in the area of meals? Like, what do you want to put into your body that can help you, um, make your nerves happier rather than angrier? Though I will say I don't necessarily start with meals as much as I can. And that's because a lot of people already know what they should eat. They have trouble doing it Mm -hmm. and they have trouble doing it for different reasons. A lot of them might have stress and emotional eating. So for me, that means I have to start in the area of the mind or emotions first, Mm -hmm. because until we help them with that, it can be like, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you more, eat more vegetables, eat more fruit. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be um, as productive. So, so an, a nutritional approach, I guess I never thought of, I mean, of course, if I really think about it, I would say, of course, nutrition is going to help pain, but I'm not sure how is it going to do that? Like if I have someone who's eating a lot of processed foods, mm-hmm am I looking at the gut microbiome and its effect on the nervous system? Like what's the link between? Yeah. So the gut microbiome definitely um, Mm -hmm. would be a piece of it. Like I have someone I know that um, stopped, just cut out diet Coke and she dropped down a lot of pain. 
Wow. Yeah. So there's like certain things, things are very inflammatory. inflammatory. What? Yes. Okay. We said inflammatory at the same time. Yes, at the same time. <laughs> that's 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 where I was going in my head. I'm like soda, sugar, inflammation. Yeah. And the stress, it's having stress itself actually impairs your gut health anyway. It makes, it creates more opportunities for the leaky gut, having like a holy gut. So even though you're eating all the right things, it could one, either irritate your gut or two, your system's not absorbing enough of the nutrients. So that's kind of why I had to play around with like, how much do I really want to start with diet? And, and if you're not someone that wants to work on stress, then maybe I consider let's do diet first. You know, if, if, so there's some people that are very, very against trying to work on these other pieces, but they would be totally fine if you gave them the exercise or gave them something to do to, for it to eat. Right. Right. And it's just interesting because in a conversation about pain, I didn't right out of the gate, think about nutrition as being in that bucket, but it just, when you break it down, whether you look at the inflammatory stuff, like the oils mm-hmm. are inflammatory that obviously I was even listening to a podcast the other day and didn't know that estrogen has a natural anti-inflammatory response. And that's why a lot of women in menopause get frozen shoulder because the adhesive capsulitis is related to in part the decrease effect, decreasing estrogen in the body. And, um, I was like, wow, that is amazing. I would have never thought of that. And it was just one of the things she was talking about when it comes to like hormone replacement therapy as like a reason. So, okay. So, so meals and nutrition, I get that when you talk about the mind. So you said mind, body and meals, nutrition, (laughs) what's the mind part? How does that come into play when you're working with someone? Like, are you teaching the meditation? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So there's different components of it. Um, I would say hypnosis and guided imagery, like more mindfulness, meditative stuff is one aspect of it. Um, I would say cognitive behavioral therapy. So some of the more like mental health related things, like changing thoughts, changing emotions, um, reframing your pain, actually even understanding something new about pain, making that pain shift from pain is something about my body being broken to, hey, pain is actually about these other things um, is actually a cognitive behavioral thing. You're changing that thought. So you're not seeing your system as broken. Um, there's also acceptance commitment therapy um, would be another like mental health aspect to, to pain. And what usually that's about is um, people whittle down their life. They're like, it's painful. I don't do it. I, I am depressed. I don't do it. They like start to really avoid yes. everything. And acceptance commitment therapy is about finding your values again, knowing what is aligned with you brings you joy and have that move you forward rather than having pain, you know, spank you on the ass or, or like, you know, pushing you All through in life. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So in these techniques, are you doing these technique with techniques with people or are you referring them to a therapist who's doing this technique or is this part of what you're doing when you work on the mind part of pain with people? That is part of what I'm doing. Um, There's, and on the end of like really getting into the mind stuff, there's a lot of like trauma pieces in our child work. Remember all that stuff is stuff that your mind has built off on. Um, I think Karen, you, you had, um, talked about some subconscious stuff recently in hypnosis, right? That uh, in, in your own experience. And that is definitely hugely important in, in my work as well, because people have been raised a certain way, like if, and it's not just like, you know, the broad level um, socioeconomic stuff. Like if they had a very authoritative parent, they have like a constant inner crit- critic, like that's a lot of pressure to your system that you're constantly battling with and helping people to uncover the those things as faucets um, would, would be a big part of the mind things that I'm working on. Mm. Yeah. I think too, about um, like Ben's dad is, he grew up in new England. He's very like stiff upper lip. Like he's had two knee replacements over his life. He needs to have shoulder replacements, but he just deals with the pain. And he sort of like considers that part of his identity. I think that he can just sort of suffer through it and he'll deal with it. And now he's in his eighties and I'm sure that's how it's going to be. And so I think of that. I've never asked him if that links back to his mom and dad and maybe how they thought about pain. And maybe he's got a lot of brothers and sisters. Maybe 
you know, there's something there, but it sounds like you're saying that can influence someone's perception of pain, things from their childhood. Yeah. And so, so there's actually studies that show that if you're, if you've got a parent that like protect you from pain and it's like, Oh no, like this is about the doctor. We should go to the doctor or like they're, they're lending them, lending you their perspectives on pain. That is definitely a huge part and increases your risk for chronic pain. Um, but it also speaks to like, if you just happen to have like a verbally abusive parent, right? That itself, like then you, you might have their voice in your head all the time saying, you suck, you got to do this better, blah, 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 blah. That itself can be a, a persistent part of your, your pain cycle. Wow. Interesting. So at this point in the conversation, let me just see if I can kind of summarize where we're at. So there's, there's the, the clinical presentation of pain that's, you know, kind of maybe more measurable and more tied to something that we can maybe see on imaging or measure in some way. And that kind of is in the clinical. And then there's sort of this perceptual experience of pain that's affected by when you give the, the faucet in the tub example, all these different situations, whether it's life history or family history or um, social access to services or economics, all these other things. Okay. So I'm thinking now about this idea, and this does sort of relate to yoga in a specific way, although I, I'm pretty sure you probably address this with your patients, this idea, and you alluded to it, I think earlier, of working with or through pain. Mm-hmm. And the way it comes up for me when I think about teaching yoga is the very common scenario when someone comes to your class and says, oh, just to let you know, I'm dealing with X injury. Um, What do you think I should or shouldn't do? So basically the person is asking you for advice type of thing, which in and of itself is kind of funny in a way, because what do I know about your situation? You know, like, is it clearly outside my scope of practice? But in this two minute interaction, how am I really going to have any meaningful conversation with you? But all that aside, mm-hmm. um, the, the thing I'm trying to understand better, and I'd love to get your thoughts on is this idea of like, I can say to that student sort of what is generally said, which is take it easy, do what you can. If something bothers you back off. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of historically been the standard approach that yoga teachers have said to a student when they say, I have XYZ injury or problem. I have pain when I ABC, or what do you think I should do? Oh, just go at your own pace. Like that's, that's really the snippet that's typically said. And the more that I learn about the body, the more I begin to appreciate that there's like this nuance situation where the more kind of like the parent you talked about before, the more we always back away from pain, the less we build the capability in the body to heal, to manage pain, to work in lieu of, uh, to work despite the pain. Like, tell me what your thoughts are there. Because again, if we just look at this through the eyes of yoga, I don't know that I necessarily want to say to that person, oh, pain's good. If you have pain in my yoga class, just keep pushing yourself through it. However, I don't know that I necessarily want to say, oh, take it easy. You know, you're here to do physical movement. And, but if you have some pain, oh, you need to come into child's pose or lay on your back because that's bad. Like, I don't want to go there. So maybe just tell me generally what comes up for you in this top on this topic. And then if you could maybe give me a little bit of your advice for how I might answer that person's question in a way that allows me to kind of, cause I think I sort of think you're going to probably say not all pain is bad when someone is dealing with something that's healing. So what, where do you want to go with that? 
Yeah, so I would say that's historically true, not just for yoga, but for any profession, like medical doctors, they're like, oh, does it, it hurts to run, let's get you on a bike, or let's like, you know, we're, we're always avoiding, and it definitely has this effect of shrinking things down, where you end up doing less and less of what you actually want to do, um, and also with people with pain, it is very hard for them to differentiate between actual danger pain versus hey, their, their tissues got a little bit stimulated. So you probably know with like delayed onset muscle soreness, right? That's normal for us. Like the inflammation that comes with the working out, the lactic acid, that is part of adaptation. It needs to happen in order for our systems to be able to reach the next level of what we want to do. So if you said, Tani, I want to squat 200 pounds, but keep me always at 150 because 180 scares me. I'm never going to get you to 200 right? So the, the adaptation, definitely the stress needs to be there. Most people are what I would say is not, they're not in the Goldilocks transformation zone. They're either overdoing or they're underdoing. And so helping people understand being able to better read their body on how much it can be stressed with pain is a big part of what we should be all doing as, um, you know, yoga instructors or physical therapists. Um, so to answer that question for this person that's coming to see you and saying, you know, I had this type of uh, injury back in the day. One, we want to make sure that they, it's actually been some significant amount of time so that there wasn't enough tissue repair. So let's say they had a surgery, but they're six weeks out. Okay, well, like I probably going to still tell you to modify a lot. And also, did your doctor say it's okay for you to do this now? Um, but if it has been something that's been long and persistent and you can tell that their fear levels are high around pain, the rule for me is, Hey, okay. So like your baseline, your pain level is always a three or a four. So what I would say is you should allow yourself to tease into pain, like just a little bit, not enough that the next day you're like, Oh, Karen, this is so awful. And I'm never going to do this again, but enough that you feel like, Ooh, that's, that is a little bit more irritated than normal. But I, but I can actually continue to work with this, right? That would be a fair amount of um, teasing into the pain because your body's going to read that lactic acid, that delayed onset muscle soreness as something extra. It will feel painful. Mm -hmm. um, but as long as the next day, it's like, okay, it's a little bit stressed, a little bit irritated, still painful, um, but not, again, not so freaking out my, my system, then that is the level of tease. Yeah, I really feel based on how you're describing it, that that level of conversation is just not happening in yoga conversations with students. Like that to me sounds more like a clinical conversation. And just what I know about, like even the teachers that I work with inside my program, or even teachers I talk to in general, there's so many varying levels of understanding of basic anatomy that I feel like this level of, even if it's just a three minute conversation is maybe, I don't know. I mean, people would have to tell me what they think. I just, so it, it sort of leaves me wondering what is it just sort of, a, and I don't mean to say that when people say do what you can, that's a flippant response. I mean, that is actually a compassionate response. It's basically mm -hmm. giving agency to the person to do what they feel they're capable of. Mm -hmm. It's just that I sort of feel myself as a yoga teacher that it's sort of part of my responsibility in a way to challenge people mm -hmm. and not constantly be like, do what you can, do what you can when I see in them, there's capability for more. I just don't know that in a general open yoga class, we can really, I'm just kind of thinking through this as we're talking, we can really get into that level of detail Yeah. Other than to maybe say, well, all pain isn't bad. If you feel like as you're working through the poses in class, it's not like when you were saying before danger pain versus tissue stimulation, I sort of feel like you could say to someone on a scale of one to 10, if you're in a posture and you're feeling something that's a 10 or even close to a 10, obviously back off. If you're feeling something that's maybe in a one to two or three, even maybe that's okay for you. Again, like we're not in our professional scope, yeah. we're not saying 
yes or no. We're just trying to give guidance. Would you think that sort of framing of it might give somebody encouragement to maybe versus just saying, oh, I understand you might have pain. Well, any sign of pain, just come into child's pose or lay on your back. Maybe that's something that's a little bit more of a stepping stone up that might encourage them to try a little bit. Yeah. You could also say like whatever level your pain is at, you know, mm -hmm. you can allow yourself to actually come up a little bit just past that yeah. so that your system can start to adapt into this new range. It may yeah. not feel comfortable. It might, might feel a bit painful, but as long as it's not overwhelming you, yeah. allow yourself to hold space for that or tease into that. And I would say too, maybe even like within the framework of the class, if you're not speaking to somebody directly, you know, like if anybody here has persistent like chronic pain or persistent pain in a specific area, here's what might be helpful to help you adapt um, your body to do more with it, right? So yeah. like it, it doesn't need to be, you know, an anatomy lesson or anything, but something that yeah. where you kind of drop little nuggets throughout your, your class. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, that sort of verbiage is so not ever said. And that is so much of what I'm about as a teacher is to bring more of this sort of nuanced stuff into teaching that's informed by good understanding of science, you know, rather than what's so much out there, which is just these like blanket narrative statements that people make. And it really, that's why I was saying before about responsibility, it really does a disservice to the student because there isn't that bumping up a little bit against a challenging thing to promote growth or healing or strengthening or whatever it is. Um, okay, so I like that. I like that where maybe you're not even talking to someone in general, you're kind of just saying like, hey, as we're holding this such and such a pose, if you're feeling some pain or discomfort, something along the lines of what you said. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Yes. So, okay. So sometimes, especially when I have people on the show that have actual patients they're working with, if I always like to ask them if there are any particular like stories about any particular patients they've worked with that might make for good conversation, just because it sort of brings it to life. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you know, that you can think of like someone who maybe came to you, whether it's in your VA work or in your, and I also want to talk a little bit more about your program, but anybody that's crossed paths with you that maybe was experiencing something that you could share with us that might give us a sense of how this looks in one situation in real life. Yeah. Um, so I would say, um, there is a scale of movement that you can probably tap into. When we talk about the mind being very involved, um, one way of of thinking about it is like if if you pretended someone you know kicked you or punched you in the stomach, or you saw something someone ha someone get like kicked in the stomach, your system actually is bracing, right? It's preparing itself to as if it were being kicked itself. And so visualization itself is a very very powerful. Um, way of engaging your body movement without actually moving. Um, and they, they use it even among elite athletes. So for the spectrum of people that I work with, um, sometimes people don't want to move at the very beginning. They're like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't even move the other side that bothers me too, which mm -hmm. by the way, it can be done. Like if you, if you have a left-sided pain, using your right arm to encourage nerve movement is, is a thing. <laughs> but that being said, some people don't want to necessarily move. So you can grade down movement to the point where you're like, you know what, just visualize it. I had one guy who visualized straightening his knee and he started crying. And I, I was like, what's going on? He's like, why does that hurt so bad? And I'm like, because your nervous system is taking you to the same movement. So your muscles, everything's cueing as if it was actually happening. So for some people, if they're really, truly in, in, you know, fear cycles, that might happen. And so it's okay to bring them to the place where you can help them visualize the movement. Like if you're in a, if it's, if it's painful for you and you don't want to get into child's pose and you still want to practice this movement, close your eyes and just imagine yourself doing it. Um, that would be one way instead of necessarily modifying the pose itself. Um, and then it can go all the way up to, um, hey, so this thing, um, let's see, what's a good example of this? Um, okay. So sometimes our bodies 
learn specific movements as painful, but it only learns them in a very specific way. Like how many people do you have, Karen, where they're like, oh, I can't touch my toes if this is hard because my back hurts, you know, right? Um, So sometimes what I like to do is I like to trick people. (laughs) I'll have them do it in a different way. So let's say bending, standing and bending forward, touching the toes bothers them. They can only get to fingers to the knees. If I have them sit down with their legs straight, I'm like, okay, let's, let's see how, how, how much your arms can drift down to, to your feet. They will get close to their toes or touch their toes. And, and they're like, yeah, this is fine. I'm like, this is the exact same movement. Your back is doing the exact same thing <laughs> because what you need to show them oftentimes is that they can do it because mm-hmm. their system has learned that this thing is threatening, this thing is dangerous. And so there's a protective, me- protective mechanism that's already in place that they, so that they don't want to do it in standing. But if you can show them in other ways that they are still reaching that same range, yeah. Point, it, point it out to them. Be like, hey, look at what your body can do. Um, now we're going to try this again, standing. Let's see how far you can go. Mm-hmm. Um, repeated movement is, is helpful um, to help, help people gain range um, just as much as showing them different ways and positions of getting into that same thing. So you're overall de-threatening that movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about that when I think about modifying poses for people and changing their relationship to gravity as a method of modifying the posture. So if I have someone standing doing a balancing posture where they have to like pull their knee up and hold on to it, that might be really hard for them. But if I have them lay on their back and hug their knee into their chest and then open their hip and then bring them back up to standing. So I always talk about that a lot with teachers as a way to modify things, just change their relationship to gravity, get them feeling competent doing the thing, whatever it is, and then bring them back, almost like a progression, bring them back yeah, up. Exactly. Um, so why don't you tell us, I think now would be a good time since you talked about, you've got like your, your day focus where you're working with this niche population, I'm assuming, well, I, I shouldn't say I'm assuming it's all men. Is it is it all men or is it men and women in the VA hospital? So it's men and women in the VA hospital. Okay. More okay. men, but now there's probably a, a better balance than there used to be. Got it. And then you have this other part of what you do. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, in that particular group, I cater primarily to kind of busy, high, higher achieving, like working moms. Um, and, um, although I did, I don't exclusively work with them. I just, they're the people that I tend to, to speak more to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, most of the time when people come to see me, they already have an idea that there's something more to their pain than, than just a physical piece. Um, and it's, I, I would say it's kind of delivering everything I just described and then some there's the physical stuff that we're working through. Um, there's definitely a lot of, um, subconscious work that mm-hmm. is being done. Got it. And I, I think it's kind of fun to see, cause like people come in, they're like, well, like, how is this supposed to help my pain? But they eventually start to see like, not just changes in their pain, but changes in their life. And yeah. so it's kind of, it's rewarding to know that I'm not like, you know, crazy. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And that whole part of when you were working with people, is that 100% done online? Or is that a mix of in person and online? It's all online, because I have people from like the UK to um, California. Got it. So there, so if we're saying like, there's this, you know, niche group of working women, they're seeking you out because they have maybe gone through some sort of traditional medical path and they're still not resolved with their pain. And they maybe think there's some other component to it. Like when we were talking before about the clinical versus the perceptual experiential, they know that there's something in that bucket and they're just not sure kind of what it is and how to fix it. Yes. Yes. They, they've like, they've tried everything like the physical therapy, yeah. the Cairo, the acupuncture, the massage, they've tried the yoga. A lot of them actually want to get back into higher impact sports and they've been, they whittled down to like just gentle restorative exercises. And, you know, it's like frustrating because like you, you, they probably used to live in this higher playing field of soccer yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, so this getting is- them back- this is exactly what we were talking about before. It's like they whittle it down and yet no one around them is maybe saying to them, you know what, you can challenge your body even with the pain 
that is another way to healing. It's not always just whittling down, whittling down. I almost think of it like, I don't know when they stopped doing this, but like when people would have knee replacements and stay overnight in the hospital and be on bed rest. And like, now it's like even hip replacements are, I think same day surgery. I think they have, unless there's another complication, they have you up and out of bed, maybe the same. Yeah. They generally speaking, they want you to put in as much weight tolerance as possible. They're like, okay, let's see how much weight you can put through it. Um, there's, there's certain, like, let's say the hip surgery, if they go into through the front versus the back, like you might have restrictions. Um, the, the back method actually tends to be, um, not as helpful, um, because you, you aren't able to do like certain movements for a little bit as a tissues heal. Um, but yeah, for the most part, they want you up and moving. Yeah. And that's, I mean, even I think about years ago when people would have back problems and they'd be on bed rest and it's like, oh my God, you have to get up and moving. Yeah. So important to healing. And it's very painful because you have back pain or you just had a hip replaced or a knee replaced or, you know, um, so that I think is a sign that the clinical area of things is noticing or appreciating that pain is okay as part of healing. And so when you were describing that person that's whittling their life down and they want to get back to active sports, it sounds like you're helping them appreciate that. Yes, you can do this and the pain might still be there to some degree and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, for the most part, as you work on these things, they're not going to be, you know, magically healed from the get go. There are some people that can make some huge strides. Like I have one person that I, that I see and he's like, he, he actually only worked with me for eight weeks because I did a class with him and he's like, I actually don't have any pain anymore. Just working on breathing yeah. exercises. And so for him, it was about deconditioning. Like his system has learned not to do certain things, but as he walked more, moved more, he he actually didn't have any pain. There's a spectrum though, for people, some people will still have pain. And over time though, the high flares get less and less and less. Some people end up getting no pain long-term. Yeah. Um, I don't like to have people like believe that that's going to happen right from the get-go because that's a lot of pressure. For your system to be like, oh, I got a heal, um, but it's possible. Yeah, yeah. And as we're, I'm thinking of like a final question here, and this perfectly leads into it. It's sort of, I don't know, it's like an existential question, but you sort of touched on it already. So, what do you sort of see then as the goal of you working with someone? Because if it's not to get them to be pain free what, 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 how would you describe like the goal of what you're working towards? Yeah. If I can help them start to live their a values-based life, something that's aligned with them that they're like super interested in, like I, they want to travel, they want to write a book or whatever it is. And they have been limiting themselves because of pain. Then if I hit that goal before pain goals, I would be, and they actually generally are like super ecstatic. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I never thought I could do this again right? So how can I help people improve their quality of lives? How can I elevate their careers? How can I, you know, whatever it is they want to do, that's my ultimate goal. Um, And then pain changing alongside of it is, is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Because it's sort of like, you know, I think about the, the typical doctor conversation, rate your pain on a scale of one to 10. And that's so focused on the pain and the clinical experience and the rating where you're saying more, tell me what you want. If your life was one that was more quality filled and more fulfilling for you, like what kind of life do you want? And that to me is such a more holistic way of looking at somebody. And of course, within that conversation, pain's going to come up. It's just that you're not asking it with such that narrow focus, just what's your pain on a scale of one to 10? It's like, how do you want to live your life? You know, I want to be able to sit on the ground and play with my grandkids and then stand up. And I want to be able to run around the backyard with my dog or whatever it is. And right now I can't do that. I'm just home on the recliner watching TV all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I would that I think leads into the one question sometimes I ask sometimes to people. I'm like, if you had a million dollars, like if someone just gave you a million dollars today and, but your life, 
you did you just continue to sit on the couch like how what how useful is that like most people don't want to be out of pain just to be out of pain they want to do something and we want to start to help them think what is that thing that you want to do and i'll i'll show you how to get there working through the pain <laughs> that's working with the pain that's so great that is fantastic well this has been great i absolutely am so glad we had this opportunity to talk through this um, can you tell people how they can find you on Instagram or what's your preferred platform? It is Instagram and it <laughs> okay. is dr. Mm -hmm. dot T A W N Y Tawny dot K R O S S. And I'm very active on there. So anybody that wants to say, Hey, um, that's probably the best <laughs> place to find me. That's amazing. Okay, great. And I'll link that up in the show notes. All right. Well, Tani, this has been great. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we had this chance. I, I just, I love, you know, this whole conversation and maybe we'll have to have you come back for part two. We can do some other things. <laughs> yeah, Karen, thank you so much for having me on. I, I love these questions because it helps me think about like, what do I do? <laughs> great. All right. Well, this will actually, today's Monday. This will go live next Monday. So a week from today. Awesome. Thank you, Karen. So I'll send you the link on that day, most likely. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so right. much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And the fact that you're still here and still listening is not lost on me. So thank you so much. Couple of things. If you have any questions, please contact me. Send me what your questions are directly to my Instagram DM. You can find me there at Bare Bones Yoga. The next thing I hear so much from yoga teachers that they want to be confident. They want to feel more confident. They don't want to have that nervous feeling in their stomach when they get up to teach. They don't want to stumble over their words. They want to create sequences fast and not spend so much time writing out their sequences and practicing their sequences. And they so much want to just walk around the room rather than being tied to the mat and practicing the entire sequence with their class. If any of this hits home for you and you want to develop into a more confident, authentic teacher in the next 30 days, I want you to DM me confident teacher heard it on the podcast, and I will show you exactly how you can get there. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next episode.